Let's begin with a word of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. If you read the collect of the day today or the readings that are assigned for the third Sunday in Advent, the theme that's very clearly in all three is that of ministry. So besides being Gaudete Sunday, this upcoming week is what we call an Ember Week in the church calendar. Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday of this upcoming week are set aside as days for fasting and prayer, specifically prayer that God would raise up godly men to be priests in his church. As I was meditating on the lessons this week in light of the Ember Day that's coming up, I was reminded of a story from the history of Anglicanism. Now, the Church of England is a state church, and this can bring with it certain advantages, but the problem is that when you have a state that begins to lose its Christian conscience, it begins to create problems for the church. This was what was happening in the 1800s in England. As modernism became increasingly popular in England, it began creeping into and influencing the church. Further, the state began using the church not just as a religious organism, but as a way to make money. In 1833, the Irish Church Temporalities Bill passed Parliament, which reduced the number of bishoprics and archbishoprics in Ireland in order to streamline income, and made adjustment to the way that church property worked so as to open the door for secular control over church land. A group of young clergy and scholars at Oxford University banded together to fight this troubling trajectory in the Church of England. They became known as the Oxford Movement, or the Tractarians, after the many tracts that they produced. And these are not little tracts like what you find you know, in bathrooms or on tables after eating. These were lengthy theological treaties. The emphasis of the Oxford Movement was that the church should understand itself as a theological entity rooted in the history of the Christian tradition before it considered itself to be political or an arm of the state. The very first tract produced by the Tractarians was written by a theologian named John Henry Newman, and it was titled Thoughts on the Ministerial Commission Respectfully Addressed to the Clergy. And in this tract, Newman reminded his brother priests and deacons that they serve a church that possesses apostolic succession, that the bishops of the Anglican church can trace their orders back to the 12 apostles themselves, and that they received the power and authority that had been delegated to the church by Christ as a result of the laying on of hands. Priests and deacons in the Church of England then share in that mystery and serve their bishops. So looking around at a church that was capitulating to the political agenda of secular politicians and was liberalizing, John Henry Newman urged his brother priests to, quote, act up to your professions. Let it not be said that you have neglected a gift, for if you have the spirit of the apostles on you, surely it is a great gift. Do not be compelled by the world's forsaking you, to recur as if unwillingly to the high source of your authority, end quote. 
Newman's tract here is profound. And the advice to ministers that they act up to their professions is important. Ministers need to hear that every once in a while. Because if you lose sight of the ministerial vocation, it means that a minister cannot succeed, that churches cannot flourish in the way that they're supposed to, and the church as an entity cannot achieve its task of being the body of Christ. I'm reminded of a story I once heard from some Methodist friends. In many places, Methodist ministers exercise itinerancy. They move around to new churches every few years, usually four. The story that my friend, who is a minister, told was of one minister who went to their new church and met with their equivalent of a vestry. And he gave out index cards to each member and said, write down your top three to five expectations or responsibilities that you have of me. So everybody wrote down on their index cards what they thought, and they turned them in, and the minister collated all of them and put them on the whiteboard, and by the end of it, they had tallied 35 to 40 different expectations of the minister, to which he asked them, how do you expect me to meet all of these in a given 40-hour work week? And of course, there is no answer to that question. For Anglicans, this problem is resolved by ministers heeding the advice of Newman in the tract to live up to their callings, because that calling is clearly laid out in the liturgy for the sacrament of ordination, which is on page 546 of the Book of Common Prayer, when the bishop lays hands on the candidate for ministry and says to them, receive the Holy Ghost for the office and work of a priest in the church of God now committed unto thee by the imposition of our hands. Whose sins thou dost forgive, they are forgiven. And whose sins thou dost retain, they are retained. And be thou a faithful dispenser of the word of God and of his holy sacraments. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So according to this charge in the ordination service, there are three major responsibilities for a priest. The first is the forgiveness of sins, which we do in the liturgy and in private confession. The second is dispensing the word of God, which is primarily done through their ministry of preaching, but also in leading Bible studies and other things like that. And third, and finally, the minister is to be a dispenser of the sacraments. So the priest already has a well-defined task, ministry of word and sacrament. And as a result, one can say that the minister does not work for man in any ultimate sense, but for God, who will judge their work, just like he will judge all of us on the last day. And this leads us to the reading for today, where St. Paul addresses the issue of ministry in his first letter to the Corinthians. Paul affirms the ministerial charge we find in our ordination liturgy when he says that a minister of Christ is a steward of the mysteries of God. Now that word for steward in the Greek refers to the chief servant in a house. Just as a trustworthy servant might be charged with managing the household in their master's stead, so a minister is charged by God through his bishop to lead his cure. And how does he do that? What does he steward? He stewards the mysteries of God. For Paul, that word mystery seems to be connected to the sacraments, but also in the context of 1 Corinthians, clearly means the proclamation of the gospel. 
And in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul defines the gospel as Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the seemingly foolish message that on the cross, Jesus won the ultimate victory. So being a steward means boldly proclaiming this to the church and to the world and making that sacrifice present through sacramental ministry. And a minister should embody this gospel not only with their words and sacramental actions, but in their whole lives. As a student becomes like their teacher and a servant becomes like their master, so a minister should become like Christ. This means the minister leads the way in being foolish, at least according to worldly standards. The minister is not a businessman, not a politician, not anything else. Despite seeming foolish to the world, he carries the authority and power vested to him by Christ through his bishop and carries out his work of preaching and ministry of sacrament to open the eyes of the spiritually blind and heal the spiritually afflicted. Having this clarity about the task of ministry means that St. Paul had very little concern about the Corinthian assessment of his ministry. He tells them, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified? But he that judgeth me is the Lord." The context for Paul's words here is that he was writing to a very divided church at Corinth. According to his words in chapter 3, verse 4, there were some people in the parish who bragged about being followers of Paul and others who bragged about being followers of Apollos. Further, there were ethnic divides in the church as Jews and Gentiles in the first generation of Christianity were negotiating how they could worship and live life together. So Paul's point to them is that in God's economy, different people have different roles and vocations. So St. Paul acknowledges that to the Corinthians, he was the planter. He planted for them. And Apollos watered. But because different players and actions serve the same end and are done in the service of the same God, then there's not competition between ministers, but rather harmony. But in the midst of a plethora of human judgments, St. Paul couldn't place stock in human opinions, deferring instead to God's judgments. Now, what does it mean that Paul didn't consider human judgments of himself? Well, it's important to note that this doesn't mean that Paul acted without tact. It doesn't mean that he was a jerk, because being a minister is not an excuse to be obnoxious. It's an excuse to be a servant. At the same time, Paul's words here really open a window into his spiritual and psychological health because he understood that while people will have varying assessments of him based on their knowledge or lack thereof, based on their experiences, positive and negative, and their expectations, both stated and unstated, these opinions are ultimately subjective. Even his own self-assessment lacked any sort of credibility in his mind. So what this means is that Paul didn't allow the parishioners at Corinth to ultimately control him, nor did he allow their agenda to overrule his fundamental role as a steward of God's mysteries in word and sacrament. 
Paul's ministry then was ultimately offered to and judged by God. I am not hereby justified, he says, not by the ill-informed opinions of the Corinthians, not by his own positive or negative self-assessments, but ultimately by God. And in the rest of chapter 4, beyond the end of our reading today, Paul explains that the fact that his ministry is ultimately judged by God is why he endures all sorts of things. He became a fool for Christ. He was weak. He was despised. He was poor. He was reviled. But even in the midst of all this, Paul understood his purpose to preach the gospel and to administer the sacraments so that he could be a blessing to those who would hear and receive. Under this entire reading runs an important principle, namely that taking judgment into our hands, whether of ourselves or of others, is prideful presumption that usurps the prerogative of God and, in the case of the Corinthians, disrespected the sacrament of ordination. Instead, what Paul is saying is that it's more important to be about one's business for the Lord than constantly maintaining an impressive image. And this is where the passage takes an Advent turn. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsel of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. Judgment is coming, and when it arrives, all will be brought into the light, including that which is hidden in darkness, and everything that's hidden in the heart will be revealed. If we think that this verse is about the judgment of others, however, we miss the point, because we don't gleefully await for God to judge what we perceive to be the faults in others. Rather, we must engage in self-examination. What are we clinging to? That might be inhibiting our progress. Is it a worldly understanding of success? Is it pride? Is it nostalgia? Is it lust? Is it a false sense of superiority? Whatever it is, according to Paul, now is the time for us to deal with it because we know that judgment is coming. And that we don't know when it will come should create urgency in us. This is why in the litany of the Book of Common Prayer, which we've been praying on Friday mornings before our Bible study, we pray to be saved from an unexpected death. So what are the takeaways that we learn from today's epistle for this Advent season? I think the first thing is the reminder that what counts as success out there is not success in here. What is wise, according to God, is considered foolish by the world. And what is wise out there is foolish to God, who has put the wisdom of the wise to shame. It's the beautiful but scary theme of reversal that we see in the Magnificat. He hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. And he hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble and meek. Christians are to be a people transformed by the renewing of their minds. And this means that our metrics for success do not rely on numbers. They do not rely on political success or business acumen. Are these things always bad? No. 
Do they constitute the ultimate criteria for success in the church? Absolutely not. Success for the Christian is based on the cross, which is subversive to these worldly standards. Our second takeaway for today is that word and sacrament should be central in our lives as Christians. We encounter the word first and foremost in the sermon, but also through Bible studies, the daily offices of morning and evening prayer, and in the liturgy of Holy Communion, which includes not only scripture readings, but also an introit, offertory sentence, comfortable words, and a Eucharistic prayer that are all thoroughly rooted in the scriptures. And alongside hearing the word, we receive the sacraments. Baptism gave us spiritual life. It made us members of Christ. We receive the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross when we receive the Last Supper. Our lives need to be based on the scriptures and oriented by the sacraments. And finally, our reading, and really this whole season of Advent, is a reminder of the impending judgment. In particular, we must remember that judgment is God's job, not ours. But we should always remember that his judgment is coming. And in the interim, we must live up to our callings. And that might look different for different people based on our various vocations. But ultimately, all of our vocations are aimed at the same end, namely to grow us in holiness and to spread the gospel of Christ to the world. So may the rest of this Advent season be a faithful time of preparation for us so that we might be ready when the hidden things of darkness are brought to light and the counsels of hearts are made manifest. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost.